Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, everyone. I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director, and this is The Daily DC. Thanks so much for listening. Today on the podcast, I am joined in studio for our Friday feature by my colleague, CNN's senior political reporter, Nia Malika Henderson. Nia, thank you for doing this. It's great to be here again. You know, I think that we are moving into a bit of a new phase of this race because Joe Biden is wrapping up his three-week rollout, you know, bookended in those Pennsylvania stops. He did his first big public rally as a candidate this cycle in Pittsburgh. He ends this weekend with a big speech in Philadelphia. And interestingly, I think, you know, when he started this uh, three weeks ago, they laid out sort of three parts of the message stool, if you will. And this third leg is the big focus of the speech tomorrow, which is unifying the country, that he thinks he is uniquely qualified to, to unify the country. And I guess my question to you at the outset here is, Is that something in your reporting and being out and about that you sense there's a hunger for in a Democratic electorate that is eager to fight Trump? Do they want to unify? That's a good question, because I was at an event with Biden uh, in in New Hampshire on on Monday. And so there are some people who do talk about unifying the country, sort of going back to the way it used to be, sort of a normal presidency. And that's actually a word people use a lot, the idea of normal and restoring America's place in the world. Was Biden using that word, too? He he wasn't using the word normal, Mm -hmm. but he, he does kind of, I think, hint at sort of restoration and nostalgia. And you know, in a way that Trump did too, but sort of different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so you ha- you ha- you did have people talking about sort of bipartisanship and bringing the country together. But there was this one guy near the end of the rally who was like, "Joe, you got to take on Trump directly. You got to call him a clown, right?" So I mean, so it which was, he has done, yeah, he right? has done I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. And I think he's threatened to you know sort of take him back behind the barn or the high school or right. gym or something. Uh, so you, he, I think you have those two parts of the party. Uh, you know, and he's kind of, I think, straddling both of those things and playing to both of those things. On the one hand, telling people about the good old days when he could work across the aisle with whether it's Jesse Helms, which in some ways people don't really like that he was working with Jesse Helms. But then I think it's also this idea that he can uniquely take on Trump as well and pull him out. Maybe not in the way that he used to in terms of calling him a clown and getting into the gutter with him in, in those ways. But but yeah, I, I think there's sort of both both appetites in the party at this point. It's so, That's so interesting yeah. because it's hard, I think, to be the candidate that is trying to sell both of that simultaneously. That is, you know, a bit discordant. I get that you can say... As he says, you know, he thinks Trump is an aberration. Yeah. He thinks, uh, I believe he said in New Hampshire this week, if Trump is uh, rejected from office and loses this race, that there will be an epiphany among uh, Republicans. But when I've talked to Democrats, even, uh, you know, how many years later are we now? I guess three years later. They're still pissed about what Mitch McConnell did with the Supreme Court and Merrick Garland, and they don't think 
that had anything to do necessarily with Donald Trump. I think that's right. In 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 some ways, Biden is saying what Obama said at one point. This whole idea of the fever will break among Republicans. I believe I I, I think he said that maybe after the 2012. I think, I think he said it during the 2012 yeah. election, yeah. right? That yeah. The they, fever would if, break. And, and of course, the fever didn't break. And we saw all sorts of what might be called feverish behavior among Republicans uh, after 2012, including what happened with, with Merrick Garland. So, yeah, I mean, there is some naivete there, I think, in terms of the way Biden talks about his unique ability uh, to, to deal with Republicans and, and where the Republican Party uh, will be. But, but I do think he gets at this desire that people do think, you know, if someone like Biden gets in or it's sort of like wiping the sl- slate clean, it's like a reset. It's like a return to status quo, return to normalcy, as I was saying uh, before. It will function again It'll in function some way again. that yeah. doesn't feel chaotic. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that they see him as uniquely able to do that. Maybe because he's older, maybe because he's a, he's a white male. He's sort of the symbol of, of sort of the status quo. And you hear people talk in that, that way. There was one woman I was talking to uh, who all, she, you know, she had this whole thing and she was talking about the idea of normalcy. And she said, you know, America needs a father again, a good father again, which is, you know, I mean, these are people who also voted for Obama, voted for Hillary Clinton, too. They're not necessarily people who are what might be called invested in patriarchy or something like that. But, yeah, that whole idea. Idea. And and I think he plays to it very well. And that's why you see, you look in these polls and you, you know, you're a polling uh, nerd and, and, you know, I mean that in the best <laughs> well, possible you. way. thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> and you see him doing well with all of the different kind of buckets of Democratic voters, Across the whole whether party. it's African-Americans, uh, white college, white non-college. And I think that's his strength. And I think that's the challenge you see from the other candidates who are looking at these poll numbers. And he's running away with it in some of these early polls. So now now that you brought the balls, I'll just interject my, my, <laughs> my thing on this for a moment here. I, so there's no doubt. You know, the last time you were here on this podcast, actually, Nia, we talked about your mom. Right. And this is before Joe Biden got yeah. in. But your mom was waiting for Joe Biden mm-hmm. to get in because she was saying, you know, here's this. I don't want to call her elderly, but yeah. she's older oh, than she's, you. Yeah, she's, she's elderly. elderly. <laughs> she's, my mom's 80. Wow. She's 81 now. Okay. Yeah. An yeah. 81-year-old African-American woman in South, South Carolina, Carolina, right? church lady, yep. So, so mm-hmm. you know, when you had been talking about that, despite some of the other options in the field, you know, that has really stuck with me as as uh, why maybe I'm not shocked that Biden has come out of the gate with this. I, I think it's a more formidable frontrunner status than I anticipated. Yeah, I think but, that's right. But, um, but here's the thing, and I, I will just say this to everyone listening. For all I know, Biden is going to stay on top of the polls, go all the way, sail through the nomination, and it, it, like that, I guess, could happen. Here's the only thing I know about front-running candidates that remain front-running through the process, whether it is Bush 2000, Gore 2000, Romney 2012, Clinton 2016, Trump 2016. Mm-hmm. Candidates who started and were frontrunners in their race and remained the frontrunners all the way through to their nomination. Each one of them faced an existential crisis to the hold on that frontrunner status. And how they dealt with and responded to that crisis is what informed us about the durability and sustainability of their campaign at the head of the pack like that. And Biden hasn't had that yet. It's right. only been three weeks. He, I've got to believe, if anything is still true in American politics, he is going to face such a crisis in his campaign uh, at some point. And how he deals with that and responds to that will tell us whether or not this is something that's going to go all the way through. I think that's right. And what will it be? Will, will it be 
be about sort of ideology, and you saw some of that this week with the whole idea of whether or not he's too much in the mushy middle on climate change. You saw some of it bu- uh, bubble up around a criminal justice reform and Kamala Harris trying to ding him. Yeah, she and, started and taking she, him yeah, on a little bit did. this week. And, yeah. you know, she obviously has her own baggage when it comes to uh, criminal justice. Yeah, but I thought yeah. that was a little jujitsu right yeah, there, right? Yeah. Like she, it's a potential vulnerability exactly. for her. And, she's and like, she like, just no. like went right, turned it <laughs> yeah. right around onto the front Turned it right around, said, but yeah. did it in a way that was very respectful. And she said, sadly, I disagree <laughs> with uh, Joe Biden's record and, and rhetoric around the criminal ju- the, 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 the crime bill of, of 1994. And whether so, or not it was the cause for mass incarceration. Exactly. Uh, in, um, mass incarnation, incarceration. Incarceration. In the country right now. Here, the other thing that Harris did was sort of poke fun at this notion when she was asked about <laughs> yeah. uh, be, all the talk that she could be a number two on the ticket to right. Joe Biden and whether or not they'd make uh, good running mates. <laughs> yes, and she said, well, he would make a great running mate because we've seen him serve as vice president before. But again, that is something that you hear all the time. People, this perfect ticket, and this is you hear it from people, black people, uh, white people, old people, young people, this idea that the perfect Democratic ticket to take on Trump would be Biden at the top and and, and Kamala Harris is the number two. And that was a story that came out uh, this week as well. The, the CBC apparently floating this idea as well. well she doesn't and, uh, seem she doesn't, ready yeah, to concede yeah, 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 that she, she slotted for the number exactly, two position exactly, just yet. Exactly. <laughs> and so, I mean, in terms of Biden, I think you talk to all the folks in these campaigns and they feel like one of his big vulnerabilities, and I think Trump is sensing this too, is does he, the age thing, right? Not only the age of his ideas, but his physical age and what that means for how he is on the stump, how he is on the trail, the kind of displays of stamina uh, that, that that we see over the next many, many months and weeks. And so, yeah, but, but you do have these campaigns that are like, he's the big guy. They feel like he's, I think, probably a more formidable frontrunner than we all believed. And it's sort of, okay, wait and see. How, how, does, how does this play out? What kind of candidate is he going to be? And it's really interesting uh, to what you said. I don't know where the challenge will come from. I, my guess is it's probably more going to come from his own doing than it is an ideological battle line yeah. that's being drawn in the party. It's it's going sort of uh, to Biden be a, being Biden. some sort of self-inflicted thing in how he responds to that. It would be my guess. But, but what I am pretty sure of, and I really do not like to make predictions, is that he will face a real challenge. So uh, while he is a formidable frontrunner, I just would caution everyone listening, the thought that he is just going to glide his way to yeah. the Democratic nomination, I just haven't seen that. No, we haven't seen it. Ain't going to happen. Yeah. So, you were just talking about his strength across all these categories in the Democratic Party, which in turn means that he isn't just taking from uh, Kamala Harris or some of the others. He's also taking some from Bernie Sanders, That's who right. has been on the decline. Now, we see Warren and Buttigieg a bit on the rise in some of these polls. So I'm sure they're, you know, I'm sure Buttigieg is taking some of the young from Sanders, like mm-hmm. a, a little slice there. Warren, obviously, the ideological compatriotism she has with Sanders can take some slices there. But even Joe Biden seems to be taking some of Bernie Sanders' support as well. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think about a Sanders candidacy at the moment that seems sagging or in decline of support 
because that is not something he experienced at all That's in right. 2016. Yeah, and I have to say, going into this, I probably said this on air many times, the idea of Sanders' support being rock solid, right? And those folks not going anywhere. And I was under the assumption that a lot of the Sanders people were committed to him because of his ideology, right? But if you look at what's happening in these, these poll numbers with Biden taking some of that support, it certainly suggests that some of those people were with Sanders because they were anti-Hillary Clinton and mm-hmm. anti-whatever she represented. In some ways, maybe cultural changes that Hillary Clinton represented uh, that Biden doesn't represent, right? I mean, Biden, you know, sort of culturally is from the same era as, as Sanders is. He's an older uh, white man. And so you see some of those San- those Sanders voters uh, go the way of Biden. So and perhaps some of them also are... A- find the electability argument more appealing. Exactly. Right? I mean, exactly. That, that, that Biden is making. I think that's right, it, which also has to do with sort of race and gender in some ways as well, why he would be more electable, because maybe he can get some of those white uh, working class voters in, in the Midwest. And, and so one of the things you see Sanders doing, right, he's going on this tour of the South, yes. right? Uh, and of course, we know what the South is in a Democratic primary. It's a lot of African-American voters haven't seen him do it, obviously, as well as Biden is doing among African-Americans in these early polls. That was a problem for him against Hillary Clinton. So I don't know what you do if you're the Sanders campaign. You're He's really got to fight for him. You've got to fight for him. You're, you're basically uh, trying to turn Biden into Hillary Clinton and bringing up the, the NAFTA vote, bringing up uh, support for the Iraq war as, as well. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. That's a really good way of putting yeah. it. So we'll see if, if that works. But I have been shocked by, you know, you look at these New Hampshire polls. Again, it's early. We don't know what's going to happen happen, but to see uh, to see Biden ahead in New Hampshire, which was such a strong state uh, for, for Sanders in 2016. The other thing of the Southern tour that you say Sanders is going on, clearly, obviously, aimed at the African-American vote, but also just strategically on the calendar, every state he's going to on this trip this weekend is a Super Tuesday state. And he's trying to build something clearly, with the help of African-American yeah. support, will be a key part of it, a bit of a firewall past those first four states in case he doesn't capture lightning in a bottle again Mm -hmm. uh, like he did in 16 and ignite from an Iowa or New Hampshire. Uh, He's trying to build something, I think, in that big firewall of delegates to to hope to be able to do it. I don't know if it'll be successful, obviously, but but it is, I would think, why somebody who knows they're going to have enough money to go a little bit further to start looking at those Super Tuesday states. Yeah, and also look at the fact that it is a crowded field and it's going to be a delegate fight, right? And you could put together some sort of victory where maybe you come in second here and second here and a couple of, you know, first place as well in some of the caucus states. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's all of these campaigns are looking at it in that way, a kind of knife fight in a telephone booth in terms of these delegates. (laughs) Great. Image. We're going to pause on that image. We're going to have a lot more with Nia Malika Henderson right here on The Daily DC after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Daily DC. I'm David Chalian, CNN political director. I am joined in the studio this Friday by my colleague Nia Malika Henderson. She is CNN's senior political reporter. Nia, we got numbers 22 (laughs) and 23 into the Democratic (laughs) nomination race this week. And I actually, I will say, I will be surprised if there's a 24. I think we have. So you think we're we're done? I think we're done. You guys heard it. This is his prediction. We're done with 23. I think we have rounded out the field here. Uh, I'll start with the, the latest entrant into the race, which is New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, obviously met with a ton of uh, scorn and jeer from his hometown press 
Press Corps uh, from his uh, home city constituents, the three quarters of whom didn't want him <laughs> to run. But I think that misses the point of why he says he's doing this. Yeah, and it sort of, I mean, if you think back to when de Blasio was elected, he was seen as this great progressive hope, somebody who could try all of these progressive ideas in the lab of New York City, right? A city of eight, eight million people. Uh, since then, it hasn't gone so well on any number of issues, subways being at the top. I don't know if you Which can... the mayor always gets blamed for, but it's actually the governor's yes, responsibility yes. in New you York. Know, I, don't think yes. if you could, I don't know if you can blame the New York Knicks on, on de Blasio, <laughs> but maybe. But New uh, Yorkers so, do. Yeah, you know, New they York's, find a way yeah, to blame yeah, the mayor yeah, for like, everything. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you see that in some of the polling and the, the cover of the New York Post. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, he's somebody who wants to talk about these uh, progressive issues. He feels like he does have a record on some of them, including a minimum wage and including expanding pre-K and dealing with criminal justice reform. It's obviously not gone well in terms of the criminal justice part, uh, in terms of how the police view him. Uh, and you saw some of their complaints and derision of him uh, once, once he announced. But listen... If, but if you're, may that not help him in a Democratic nominee? No, I think, I think that's probably right. right. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Uh, and if you're Bill de Blasio, you see this uh, 37-year-old mayor named Pete Buttigieg from a town of what? I think it's about 150,000 or yeah. something like that. I mean, it's basically quite, like a four-block area. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> so you see him doing well and generating a buzz. And you also just see 2016. Who thought Donald Trump would win the White House, right? And so I think a lot of these... Uh, Democrats are inspired by those things and obviously raising their own profiles and, you know, raising whatever speaking fees they get after they're out of office, uh, those sorts of things. And also, I've decided listen, there's no downside. Yeah, that's I, right. There's I no just, downside. I don't know what the downside is. What is I mean, the you downside? Have, you could have an embarrassing campaign, which I would say uh, Herman uh, Cain had on the Republican right. side yeah. in 2012. And he almost joined the Trump Speaking fees have gone up since then, and his talk show or something. So, like, it's I, I just. Even if you have a bad run for the presidency, you're a former presidential candidate, exactly. and that just increases your everything, uh, your brand, yeah. your name ID, all of those things. And I also think it goes back to Biden. This idea, when when in, when Biden has this moment, and what kind of moment it is, is there sort of a collective need to find a sort of alternative to Biden, an establishment figure that people think could be electable? And so I think that also I think is in some ways why you have so many white men who were joining in the field. I think it's it's, it's at least probably half white men, right? I, I mean, oh, yep, it's like probably. two Johns, a, a Steve. I mean, there are a lot of folks <laughs> you know, out we there. We talked so much at the beginning of the process as everyone was getting in initially about how diverse this it, field is. And it is the yeah, most yeah, diverse field is. in history. Uh, there's no doubt about right. that. But the latter half of this process of who's getting in, it's just been a slew it's of white guys. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Tim Ryan, <laughs> Sam. Yeah, there were a lot of folks, uh, white, white men who were running because, again, there's that allure of electability and the idea that maybe it does take a white man to win some of these Midwestern states. Uh, so speaking of white men, uh, <laughs> Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, yeah. here is a guy, you know, and this is not a... A new credential that, yeah, you know, I remember John Edwards, who was from North Carolina, was okay. trying to sell the whole notion of being a red state yeah. Democrat and what you need to to appeal. Obviously, it is the very essence of the lesson of Bill Clinton in many ways mm-hmm. and, and sort of the uh, his political legacy in that way. What do you make of Steve Bullock's message of, hey, Donald Trump won my state by 20 points. And on the same day, I was reelected governor and I've got 
these progressive credentials, whether it's getting dark money out or what have you. Do you think there's something there that's going to get a hearing from uh, Iowa voters, even though he's obviously largely not known? Yes, I, I, I think it will. I think he's got a compelling message. He got he he bagged an endorsement early the on, general, the attorney yeah. general in in Iowa. It looks like he's going to stake it all on Iowa, kind of Iowa bust, uh, you know, approach here. Which you know maybe we'll see if that if that works. But yeah, I mean he's got a compelling story. He's a young guy. He obviously really knows a red state and probably has a better argument uh, in terms of having a, a, a familiarity with red states than somebody like Pete Buttigieg does. Right? right. I mean at least he's been able to win statewide and something that Mayor Pete hasn't been able to do yet. So sure. And by the way, just a reminder, Mayor Pete tried to win he statewide did. in Secretary Indiana and it didn't work out. Treasurer, Treasurer I think. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so didn't didn't quite work out. So yeah, sure. I think all of these voters, I mean, you, you talk to voters, they are wide open in terms of they, the, the ultimate goal is who can win, obviously, and they are listening closely to, to who they think could do that in terms of policy, in terms of messaging, in terms of electability as well. And so Bullock will obviously come in with that strong electability argument, saying that he can also, some of these progressive uh, ideas as well, appeal to those kinds of voters. So we'll see. Yeah, I think what you described before about that notion of if Biden falters, uh, having somebody sort of Biden-esque yes. uh, standing there as a possible mm-hmm. alternative, I think Steve Bullock is counting on that. I mean, I think that is his really what he, I think Biden is the biggest challenge to him getting a full look, because I think part of his appeal is um, Biden, but younger, new yeah. generation mm-hmm. Biden or mm-hmm. what have you. Which you see a lot. Of, I mean, in some ways, I keep mentioning Mayor Pete. But yeah, he's making that same argument in some ways, too, that, that, that there's a sort of generational uh, appeal that he has, and it's time to turn the page from these uh, folks who sort of got us into this mess, he might say, uh, to, to somebody else and somebody younger. Do you think 23 is too many? Or like, do you... Do you like, <laughs> is it, is the, in other words, is your sense that 23 becomes problematic for the Democratic Party overall or no, it's a, a way to harness a ton of anti-Trump energy that's I out think, there? I think that's right, mostly, that it is a way to touch like all segments of yeah. the party, ideologically, uh, demographically uh, as well, and really kind of flood the zone, right, in, in terms of Democrats, in terms of an anti-Trump message, in terms of what Democrats will want to bring. And I think it also is a good balance, you know, if you think, for instance, that what going on on in, in Congress mm-hmm. and maybe the maybe too much focus on Mueller. Well, you've got these 23 other people who are focusing on any number of issues. You know, they want to focus on climate. You know, if, if you're Inslee, right, that's right. that's that's what he wants to focus on. So yeah, I think it's like anything but Mueller. That yeah, focusing yeah. On, right? I think, I think yeah. that's right. So, you know, listen, is it an unwieldy field? Do I remember all 23 of them on command? <laughs> no. And I'm sure most voters don't either. But in the end, I, on balance, I think it'll be good for the party. I, I don't believe I think she could do all 23 on command at any time, but I won't put her to the test. Thank you. Um, Before we go, I do want to talk about the issue of abortion, which uh, just became – it's always a lightning rod of an issue in American politics, but it got sort of reignited uh, this week with Alabama passed the legislature there and the governor signing into law. Probably the most restrictive yeah. uh, uh, anti-abortion I mean, even, bill. Even Pat Robertson, which I thought was a it joke. It went too when far he, for yeah, Pat yeah, Robertson. Like, it went too far for the RNC chairwoman, Ronna, uh, Romney McDaniel. It went too far for Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader. Because, because, quite frankly, it actually goes well beyond what the Republican Party platform is, exactly. what Republican presidential candidates have run on, because they've always included exceptions for rape uh, and incest, incest, which this bill did not. But apart from the Alabama law, you know, 
abortion is not one of those issues. It's an issue that both bases like, right? Mm-hmm. That it, it it can raise money from the grassroots on the right and the left. It can build your voter list uh, and your online communication on the right and the left. But it is not ever really proven to be a voting issue or something that um, voters come down to making uh, their final decision about in most of the research that we've seen, right? Right. Um, I think it's a fundamental part of people's ideology and where they fall on the left-right spectrum. I think it fits into that equation. But what was so interesting to me this week is to watch Democratic candidates actually seize this as a as a moment and a real issue because they don't always do it with this issue of abortion when it comes up. I think that's right. And, and it, you know, you look decades ago, they were a bit, you know, what was Bill Clinton's kind of mantra on this? Safe but rare. Right. Safe, legal, of, and rare. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In terms of abortion. And now you see, uh, and particularly the women candidates, Elizabeth Warren coming out and saying, you know, the country can't go back to the era of back alley abortions. Uh, and, and Gillibrand going down to Georgia Georgia, and in some ways seeing this uh, as an issue that can ignite her campaign, mm-hmm. which has had trouble. Uh, and she in said some she ways. would make it a litmus test for yeah, any Supreme for, Court nominee. That's right. Now, Hillary Clinton did not do that. She Hillary Clinton's litmus right. test was Citizens United. That's, that that's was her, right. That was going to be her litmus test for a Supreme Court nominee. Yeah. She wouldn't even, so you don't even, have to go back even, far to Bill Clinton. Yeah. It's only in the last presidential race with Hillary Clinton at the top of the ticket who didn't Who like, didn't want to go right. as yeah, far. Exactly. And so it is fascinating. And in I wonder if it's because the reality is so different now. You've got, obviously, this 5-4 majority on the court. Thank you to Mitch McConnell and thank you to, obviously, uh, Donald Trump. And he made this an issue, too, when he was running this idea of the Supreme Court. And these are the 11 folks who I would choose. And that was a real— Federalist Society list. This is what it was all about, right? This is what it was was all about. It is a generation-long project uh, for this moment. Exactly, exactly. And you saw voters vote on it, right? I think it was like 25 percent of Trump voters— thought that was very important. The composition of the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court, you know, could do in terms of abortion was certainly part of their thinking about the Supreme Court. So, yeah, I mean, it's a new reality and sort of the urgency, I think, that is displayed by what's going on in Alabama and what that reality would really mean, right, if you just... You know, it, it was illegal in, in all cases in a state like Alabama or, or nationwide. So I do think it's a it's a sea change for Democrats, and they feel like uh, they can grab onto it in a way uh, that they hadn't before. And a lot of the polling suggests that what I think it's sixty to seventy percent of Americans do think that Roe v. Wade should remain right, in they place. They want to keep the status quo. They want right? to keep yeah. the status quo. I think even Republicans is something like forty five percent or a, something a like that. Right? Yeah, who, yeah, who want to keep it in place? And I think it's thirty seven percent who want to see it. Uh, tossed out or modified. And so, yeah, I mean, they feel like this is an issue that, that they can win on in terms of just the general public. Democrats do independence. And it's a way to paint Republicans as extreme on this issue. And you saw Republicans try to do this to Democrats, right? The whole idea of infanticide and, you know, they want to all, all these the kind of rhetoric you've heard from Republicans. So, yeah, this is going to be fascinating to see what happens with this. There are obviously cases at the appellate court that could work their way up to the Supreme Court. Right. This Alabama law may not be the one that gets to the Supreme Court and is the task. Yeah, yeah. But you likely... Lots of states are working on it. Exactly. Exactly. With this very idea that finally there's going to be some sort of reckoning with Roe v. Wade or at least some sort of narrowing. That that seems like where it'll be, a kind of state issue, state-by-state issue, and more restrictions allowed in these different uh, states and a red state, blue state divide, an economic divide, all those things. But yeah, fascinating to see this new era in terms of abortion and the rhetoric coming from Democrats. Yeah. And I... um, 
got the sense this week. I don't think it's going. I think it's going to stay part of their democratic messaging right. for the cycle. Yeah. I, it was. It didn't feel like uh, we're just going to do this because it's in the news yeah. this week. Like, it felt one like they by one. I mean, twenty three of them yeah, basically came part out. of the core of their message. Me and Malika Henderson. I love talking politics with you. Thank you so much for Thanks, coming David. in here. That does it for this edition of the Daily DC. Thank you all so much for listening. Hope you'll tune in again right here on Monday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.